0: Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today for our episode, we have the second part of our two-part series on the quest for the historical Jesus. Well, Scott, you know, last time, you know, we covered a lot of ground on um, the the different elements of you know, where this discipline and, and study has gone, and and today, as we get into some of where the conversation is today, and you know, where it is going to continue to be going into the future, and as the church, what is the importance for for this study, and how can we be trustworthy in the sources that we have of who Jesus is? Um, to get started, I guess. For today, in the conversation as it's currently happening, who are some of the major players and and what are they saying and their contributions that they're making?
1: Yeah, this is good. Uh, And I want to begin by just briefly restating what was said in last week's podcast or our previous podcast on the historical Jesus. And that is, when we talk about the historical Jesus, we are talking about modern day scholars reconstructing what Jesus was actually like over against what the church has confessed in its creeds and even what the church has in its gospels. So it's an attempt to get behind the creeds, behind the gospels to what Jesus was really like. And this quest has been going on. Uh, many people will date it because Albert Schweitzer dated it then, back to a guy named Herman Samuel Reimarus, about the time the United States was founded as a nation and established say 1776, I think one of his major studies came out. So, uh, But then a, a major player was Albert Schweitzer at the turn of the century who believed in an apocalyptic Jesus. Uh, then we had Rudolf Bultmann who made the powerful uh, statement that we cannot discover what Jesus was actually like because the the gospel records are too fragmentary and legendary so that we know very little about the historical Jesus. We cannot map his personality on the basis of these records, and neither does it matter because uh, Jesus is the one we encounter in the preaching of the word. So Boltmann and Barth at times overlapped like this. Then along came one of his students named Ernst Kasemann, who said, no, we, we can get back to what Jesus was like. And he helped develop some methods on trying to figure out what Jesus was really like, but it wasn't until uh, the 1980s and 90s that American scholarship just became overwhelmingly fascinated with Jesus, and we had major players like John Dominic Crossan, a former Irish priest who taught in Chicago area. And then uh, wrote some very important books on Jesus, and used methods and very cleverly put together. Some would call is Jesus a uh, countercultural Jesus, uh, wearing a tweed coat and uh, sounding like a a professor critical of culture. But Crossan was a very serious New Testament scholar, very serious historical Jesus scholar, and he proposed some things that many people use to this day, like an emphasis on open commensality, he called it, which is an emphasis on table fellowship to break down the the categories of the Roman society. Then uh, alongside him was a guy named uh, Marcus Borg, who wrote a very important book on Jesus, Jesus, A New Vision, very accessible, powerful, uh, clear writer. And he, he sketched a Jesus who was a sort of a religious genius, whose life of spirituality became a paradigm that drew other people into that sort of religious and spiritual way of life. Uh, A friend, a very close friend of Marcus Borg is N.T. Wright or Tom Wright. And Tom Wright, uh, in many ways, resurrected a much more orthodox Jesus, much closer to the creeds, but Tom Wright wanted to investigate Jesus in his Jewish world as a Jewish prophet who spoke of himself in terms of God uh, returning to Zion uh, in his uh, triumphal entry. So Tom Wright had has all the hallmarks of of what became Christian orthodoxy, and as a, and Tom is a great writer with captivating images and his book in 1996, Jesus and the Victory of God, is probably one of the most widely sold books on the historical Jesus ever. Uh, After that, uh, I don't think there were any, uh, Paula Fredrickson wrote an important book on Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, but it didn't have as many creative ideas. It was a little bit more um, critical of the the Christian uh, interpretive tradition about Jesus, uh, so she would she she thought the Gospels had uh, overcooked who Jesus was and cooked him up to a higher level than he really was. Uh, it wasn't probably until Jimmy Dunn wrote his book uh, Jesus Remembered that the Jesus historical Jesus quest of the 20th century sort of came to an end in having creative input. And Jimmy Dunn contended that the gospel records. Uh, are records of the remembrance of Jesus, the memory of Jesus. And Jimmy uh, didn't like people saying they could get back to who Jesus actually was. He knew that their only access to Jesus was the memories that the apostles in the early church had about Jesus. Those are probably the major players, but but I want to emphasize that alongside this, liberation theologians, um, female theologians, uh, like Paula Fredrickson, Amy Jill Levine, have seen in Jesus other messages that some of the uh, white guys uh, have neglected and not seen. So in the last 20, 30 years, uh, while those original uh, impulses from Cross and Borg, Wright and Dunn, and Paula Fredrickson have sort of played their way out, uh, voices continue to use Jesus to show that he had a sort of a socioeconomic and liberation edge to him. And uh, we we continue to get some some studies that are innovative and suggestive on top of these great uh, books that were written in the Late 20th century.
0: Yeah, you know that's fascinating. You bring up that about the liberation and uh, feministic theologians, Um, because last you know last episode we talked about that quiz that you'd have your students do and the um, just the propensity I guess in our study of Jesus to see ourselves in that. And um, I feel like you know as we you know even look at the, the gospels and and their differing accounts and how they were written to a specific group of people for them to understand Jesus in their context. I feel. Like, it's important for us as we study anything, but especially Jesus, you know, we need each other and each other's perspective um, to help see our blind spots and to, to help see our, our presuppositions and things that, that we don't understand w- without each other. And there's just a, a depth and healthiness, I feel, to, you know, seeing those different elements, I guess. Yeah. And
1: and um you know, uh, a guy like Gustavo Gutierrez in the, who, who sort of cooked up uh, in a very special way uh, the brew called liberation theology that just has spawned studies in all sorts of directions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, these people uh, academically almost always connected their vision to Jesus and his understanding of the kingdom of God. And they saw in it a socioeconomic radical vision that people who want to talk about the kingdom of God, whether it's here or now, endlessly and debate, is it present, is it partly present, is it totally in the future, Mm -hmm. are missing out on the, let's say, socioeconomic edge to Jesus's ministry. Whereas in the very first sermon that we have recorded in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, yeah. Jesus is announcing already that he has come to bring good news to the poor. Mm-hmm. And the Beatitudes talk about poverty. Blessed are the poor. And when, when John is in prison and he's interrogating, mm-hmm. is Jesus the one who is to come or not? Jesus once again uh, captures that radical edge that Jesus has come to overturn injustices mm-hmm. and to bring healing to this world. So um, I, I can tell you, you, you can read sometimes in those early historical Jesus studies, and and you see some of these themes, but they were developed much more deeply in later studies that started to focus on the socioeconomic edge. Mm-hmm. And look, look, a guy like Richard Horsley um, Greg Carey, who's at Lancaster Theological Seminary, some of these scholars have demonstrated pretty pretty clearly uh, that Jesus had some radical attitudes toward the socioeconomic issues, and he was pressing in against the Empire of Rome and its invasion of the Galilean territories, and they were irritated by and Jesus was irritated by what was happening socioeconomically to the poor. So, uh, we We've grown a lot over the last fifty years, sixty years in understanding what Jesus was like. It wasn't simply a religious message that God is our Father and that we are brothers and sisters, and that we should be doing good and be concerned with justice.
0: Mm-hmm. It is
1: It is taking on flesh and
0: life in in many of these more recent studies. Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, you know, I'm a little curious about how, um, as you know, we've laid out kind of the the status today and, and these different players. By the way, I'm going to include links in our description bar to some of the suggested resources if you're interested in reading more about them or uh, the the topic as a whole. But as as we look at them and their contributions, um, how about something like the Jesus Seminar? Now, that's probably something everybody's heard about, um, but you know, but their process and and their role in um, the, the conversation of this study.
1: All right so I, I just pulled off my shelf. I wondered if you were going to bring this up. I just mm-hmm. pulled off my shelf uh, the, the famous book produced by uh, Robert Funk and the Jesus seminar called The Five Gospels in which you know there's a message right there that the the Gospel of Thomas, It needs also to be included if we're going to talk about the early church's Gospels. So that's precisely the point I said before, is that historical Jesus studies are concerned with getting behind the creedal Jesus and behind the Gospels, the canonical Jesus, which is the record of the church's understanding of Jesus, to find out what he was really like. And that means we have to look at all the sources. And so Funk included the Gospel of Thomas in his uh, five Gospels. I pulled it off and I looked at the Lord's Prayer. Now look, uh, most of us uh, who are listening to this podcast will have learned uh, the Lord's Prayer at some time in our life and we've learned to quote it. And I, I I want to mention what the Jesus Seminar thinks is absolutely authentic. In the whole Lord's Prayer, they think the only thing that is totally authentic is our Father. Nothing else. Hmm. Uh, there's nothing else that we can trace with certitude back to Jesus. But they would also add, as probably said by Jesus, Your name be revered, impose your imperial rule, provide us with the bread we need for the day, forgive our debts to the extent that we have forgiven those in debt to us.
0: Hmm.
1: And then they are certain that Jesus didn't say, In the heavens, our Father, in the heavens, or that he said, enact your will on earth as you have in heaven. And he didn't say, but rescue us from the evil one. But he may have said, and please don't subject us to test after test. Now, those that's their own translation. Now, this is very important to understand how historical Jesus studies works. If you think that the only thing is authentic about that prayer is our Father, that's all you can factor into your data bank when you're reconstructing what Jesus was really like. Mm -hmm. He he prayed to God as Father. If you add your name, be revered, impose your imperial rule. That's a pretty interesting translation. Provide us with the bread we need for the day, forgive our debts. Notice that's not sins or transgressions, that's debts. So that's a socioeconomic understanding that Jesus wanted debts to be forgiven and they would cooperate as humans in, for, in forgiving the debts of others, sort of like a jubilee operation. Then you can factor that kind of socioeconomic message into your understanding of Jesus. But that's how historical Jesus studies have always operated. That is, they go through the Gospels word by word carefully, and they, uh, on the basis of criteria that are used by historians in other fields, as well as used especially by Jesus scholars, and they, they sort of agree to use these sorts of criteria, they decide which words uh, were said by Jesus, which events were done by Jesus, and then they have a data bank that they can use to reconstruct what Jesus was really like. This is exactly what John Dominic Crossan did. Mm. Then you get to a person like N.T. Wright, and I don't believe you will ever discover in N.T. Wright's books any time where he said that any saying of Jesus in the Gospels was not said by Jesus. So he's a he would be a maximalist when he comes to the to the historical appreciation of the Gospels themselves as historically accurate or at least reliable. So there's a there's a big variety even within historical Jesus scholars, as to what's authentic. In part, N.T. writes, Jesus and the victory of God, differs from Dom Crossan and Mark Borg on the basis of the fact that Tom considers more sayings and more deeds in the Gospels as reliable, and therefore a more complete or a wider, deeper, more expansive understanding of Jesus can be constructed. So that's how it operates. In historical Jesus studies, and that's why in our last session I said, I think we have to define what historical Jesus studies are actually about. Mm-hmm. They are the attempt to examine the gospel records and to discern what is historical and what is not, and to reconstruct Jesus on the basis of those reconstructed sayings over against what the church has believed and even over against what the gospels themselves actually claim
0: yeah and so as as we you know understand that and we read these things and, and we um, come across things like the Jesus seminar and, and their opinions and interpretations and belief from their study um, what should that do for us as um those of us who who are Christians with faith in Jesus um, and, you know, certainly the historical Jesus people will will say, well, that's the Jesus after the creeds and the gospel. Um, How should that affect us? How should we pay attention? How should we engage with that? Um, And I guess maybe, you know, are the gospels something that that should be trusted?
1: Yeah. Chaz, this is a good question. And I think this is a very uh, common fear Uh, A common worry, a common source of anxiety for people who grow up in the church being told that the red letters Mm -hmm. were said by Jesus. The black letters came from the evangelists themselves, but they're all reliable. And then they encounter someone like Mark Borg or Dom Crossan. E.P. Sanders, someone out there who says, no, these aren't reliable sayings of Jesus, and you got to get rid of those if you really want to know what Jesus was like. Mm -hmm. And then there's a fear that they've been duped, and maybe there's a conspiracy in the church against uh, what Jesus was really like, and people can get uh, concerned. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I would want to make a couple points. The first one is this. Uh, I've been following the historical Jesus studies for more than 30 years. I have about Thirty feet of books in my library on the historical Jesus, and they're all arranged in chronological order. I've been reading Jesus books my for you know for my whole academic life and i'm I'm confident to say, uh, without any debate that these people don't agree with one another. Mm-hmm. It is not like this is scientific evidence and we can demonstrate the age of the universe mm-hmm. or the age of the earth, or we can demonstrate. When um, Australopithecus first arose, we we can't. That's not what's going on with historical Jesus scholars. Every scholar, when they apply this method, largely disagrees with every other scholar. Now there are some common ideas. Everybody thinks Jesus called God Father. Everybody hmm. thinks Jesus preached about the kingdom of God, even though. They don't always define kingdom of God the same way. Uh, everybody thinks uh, that Jesus went around doing good, <clears throat> and everybody thinks Jesus cared about the marginalized and the poor. All right, so we can agree on that. But that's mm-hmm. not what's going on. the The debate has to do with how exalted Jesus thought of himself, and how exalted his apostles thought of him, mm-hmm. and are these the same exalted views of Jesus? So so when it comes down to it, uh, a, a lot of times uh, when we read these scholars, if you read seven of them, you come away saying, that's seven completely different portraits of Jesus. If you ask that question, I think the second observation should be, I'm gonna have a hard time believing that these people are objective. I'm gonna have a hard time believing that uh, that I need to trust an academic scholar's reconstruction of Jesus, because it appears that everybody fashions Jesus in their own image. And then we have to ask: Are the gospel records themselves reliable? Well, what what you know, we we can ask: How do we measure reliability? Mm-hmm. But um, I think that a person like Craig Blomberg, who's kind of spent his life uh, working on this, R.T. France. Uh, there was a great group of of scholars who uh, at Cambridge University, uh, gathered every year and talked about the reliability of the Gospels. I think it it is pretty reliable that Jesus did miracles. It's pretty reliable that Jesus exercised demons. It's pretty reliable that Jesus said exalted things about himself. And I think the end comes down to, are you going to believe what the Gospels say Jesus said about himself, Mm -hmm. or are you going to distrust that? Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think I can sit here and prove to you uh, that every saying of Jesus is authentic, but I, I think I can demonstrate that he was raised from the dead on the basis of pretty sound historical methods. And once we demonstrate that Jesus was raised from the dead, the The jig is up, and the whole game changes. Mm-hmm. This is a person who came back to life. I think I'm gonna think that there are miracles and that there are powerful things going on in connection to him, and that these gospel records actually tell us about that kind of Jesus,
0: yeah, it seems like the resurrection is so much of the linchpin of i mean if that happened, then um what can't Jesus do um, i mean this doesn't, doesn't this doesn't all of a sudden. <clears throat> This doesn't all of a sudden, for the
1: historian, just mm-hmm. prove everything is reliable. Sure, yeah. But but it changes the game when you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. And, and I have myself examined a number of sayings of Jesus uh, in the crucible of historical Jesus methods, and I came to the conclusion that the methods are limited, but of value.
0: Mm-hmm
1: that the end result is that I think I can demonstrate uh, as a historian that Jesus died. I think I can demonstrate reasonably as a historian that, that Jesus was raised from the dead. But I cannot prove to you on the basis of a historical method that Jesus died for my sins or that he was raised for my justification. Those things are not open to the historian's gaze. Mm. You can't open up the tomb of Jesus, see the body gone, and say, that's justification. Mm. That's not open to—that's an interpretation of Jesus. It comes as a result of faith and encounter with who he is, and we will never know the fullness and significance of who Jesus is until we look him in the eyes and trust him for who he says he is, yeah. and trust the apostles for who they say he was, because they were there, and just say, I'm going to let that Jesus and that message about Jesus have its way in my life, in my mind, in my heart, in my soul. And when that happens, I think all of a sudden you say, he died for
0: my sins.
1: And, and I, I can say, I've had that experience, and I and I think it's true.
0: Yeah, so at the end of the day, it, it still will always come down to a, a step of faith that people have to take, and either, you know, they're, everybody's up to their own decision on, on what they're going to do with their life, but um, to experience, like you said, in, in Jesus in that way, then faith is necessary.
1: You know, I've sat at the table
0: with almost all these historical Jesus scholars. I mm-hmm. think everyone I've
1: mentioned in this session and the last session, other than, of course, Albert Schweitzer, Boltmann, and Keseman, uh, the older guys, I've sat at the table with almost every one of them. I know many of them personally, and I I can tell you at times, uh, I I look at them and I'll hear them, and I think they're saying, I just don't believe that stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, you know, Marcus Borg says that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when, when you, you know, I think that that if you do
0: believe that, I think I think things change.
1: Mm-hmm. They do. They do change.
0: So you know, we mentioned last time about um, seems like around every Easter season, there's somebody who comes out with the, the 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 thing revealed. I know about Jesus that nobody else before me in history knew, and uh, it gets. You know, publicity and and you know, it gets um, just people's interest going, and and it becomes very popular. But it also can create you know worry in believers, as like you know we talked about: is the gospel trustworthy? It has have I had the wool pulled over my eyes? And it seems like, as we've talked, that um, at the end of the day, what we have to keep in mind is that all of these different um, views and and what people have presented are just that. They're they're their views and they're their understanding. And and there is uh, multiple great evidence out there from other researchers to be able to know this is not something that we just throw the baby out with the bathwater, that there is um, foundation and there are are reasons for our faith. And um, we do, as just wise people, need to be diligent in our own study and pursuit of it. But um, can still yet rest assured that the gospels are trustworthy, that uh, our faith does have a foundation, and um, and it's our job, I guess, to investigate that.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, let's let's remember this: that um, a guy like Dom Crossan or Marcus Borg or Paula Fredrickson or Amy Jill Levine are offering an interpretation of who they think Jesus was. They're not. They're not. Uh, Pre, they're not doing pure objectivity as if there's no interpretation going on they're they're rendering or construing Jesus through their own mind and lens on the basis of what they think and see all right that's true so did matthew so did mark so did luke and so did john so mm. who are we going to choose yeah are are we going to choose modern reconstructions of jesus or are we going to choose, you know, first century apostolic witnesses who knew people who were there and heard Jesus and saw Jesus and watched Jesus. There there are eyewitnesses around and I I want to be in touch with the best witnesses to who Jesus was. I'm not saying that modern scholars aren't very serious. Look, I know these people. They care about their topic. Oh, yeah, they're good people. I, mm-hmm. You know, I know some of them are a bit nutty. I haven't mentioned <laughs> any of their names, or I wouldn't you know I, I'm not going to bring their names up because I don't want people reading the some of the nutty ones. but they're these people are serious people. They're a lot of them are are serious in their faith mm-hmm. and and I care about what they say. I listen to what they have to say. But in the end, I came to a methodological decision that the historian can only penetrate so far into, uh, into the picture of who Jesus was. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can only see so much that at some point you have to trust this picture for it to go to the next level. Mm-hmm. You have to, as in an auto-stereogram, mm-hmm. those pictures that are dots, that if you let your eyes go— suddenly they become three-dimensional. Letting your eyes go is the act of faith Mm -hmm. to trust this picture of Jesus. And I have found it to be transformative in my own life to uh, let my eyes go and let the picture of Jesus become three-dimensional.
0: Wow. That's great. Well, before we go today, is there any other things about the uh, quest for the historical Jesus that our listeners need to know?
1: Um, you know, what I often would say is this, you know, uh, I'm glad people are writing about Jesus and I hope you read, uh, the good scholars about Jesus, whether it's my teacher, Jimmy Dunn or N.T. Wright or E.P. Sanders. Uh, but in the end, the most important thing to do is to read the gospels and to listen to the words of Jesus and watch his actions and let those texts shape what you think about Jesus. And I think if you let that happen often enough, uh, Your own image of Jesus will be pried away from your own mind and you will begin to encounter in a fresher way who Jesus was and therefore who he can be for us today.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining us today in our conversation about the historical Jesus. And um, we hope this conversation has been helpful for you in in, in seeing the course of that study and how, you know, as as people of followers of Jesus, we want to be intentional on how the kingdom took root then. And that includes who Jesus was in his person. And, um, That leads us to how the kingdom is taking root now. So thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Make sure if you haven't had a chance to subscribe, um, do that. That helps us out so that you can continue to receive our conversations coming your way. And we'll see you next week.